All right. Happy, happy, what day is it? Tuesday today? Happy Tuesday, everybody. And welcome to another special episode of Learning Tech Talks. We're taking another slight deviation from learning technology. It will be part of the conversation, but a slight deviation. And we're really going to focus in on what the data is telling us about diversity training and whether or not it's working. Uh, so to help me tackle this one, I'm joined by my friend and industry analyst, Danny Johnson from Red Thread Research. And uh, for those of you who are just joining in, uh, let us know where you're from. Danny, where, you're, in, you're in Utah, right? I am, I'm in Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. So for those of you joining, tell us where you're from in the comments. Uh, I am in the ever beautiful Waukesha, Wisconsin. So uh, the usual thing, Danny, you're you're still in recovery from not only COVID, but also the earthquake, right? Yeah, we had an earthquake last Wednesday. So was it Wednesday? We had an earthquake last week. Okay. All right. Your house is all organized. You've gotten everything organized, everything back in place. Okay. We're good. Good, good. All right. Well, for those of you watching again, let us know where you're at. Give us a like, thumbs up, tag in somebody who'd benefit from the conversation or somebody who would find it interesting. Uh, to get things started, though, before we dive into it, you've had you've had some time now to prepare, Danny. So I'm very curious to hear this. All right, we wanted we didn't want to focus on COVID stuff, but we thought we'd take the kind of scary nature of it into the question. So, what is the scariest thing you have ever done for fun? This may seem just super unimpressive, but um, when I was 30, I quit my corporate job and took nine months off and traveled around Europe. So that was super scary for the first three months. And then I kind of adapted. It was great. Okay. Wow. So how long did you do it then? <clears throat> I, I didn't get another job for almost a year. Um, a year. I spent the first three or four months just seeing the world. And then I bought a bike <laughs> and started cycling. It was, now, was that did was it like a long thing in planning? Had you been oh, no. planning for a long time? You just like one day were like, you know what, I'm done. Well, yeah, one day I was just completely burnt out. I had just finished writing a book and doing some other stuff, and I was like, I'm done for a while. I'm just done. So I took it out. Great. I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> everyone should take a year. Just go for it. Well, not right now, though. Not right now. Now would be a bad time to do that and say, I'm going to travel the world. First of all, you might not get very far and two, right. probably not the safest, safest thing. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, mine's probably a little more traditional. Mine's a little more traditional from a scary thing. So this takes me back to high school, right? Going back to my very small town. Uh, one of the things there was this old, old, old graveyard way out in the river bottom thing. And it was this creepy. There were all these like local myths and urban myths. And I don't know why, but every so often a group of friends, we would go out there and literally scare the snot out of us because it was the creepiest place in the world. And we loved it. I, I don't know why, but we did it more times than I can count. Um, and yeah, that was kind of the fun, scary thing we used to do on a regular basis. Haven't been back. Can't say, can't say I've been back since I've grown up. Maybe I'll take my kids someday. So, all right. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into it on this topic. And before we dive into the whole diversity training and, and, and whether it's working or not, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the tech trends that we're seeing that I think in many cases are being used, you know, as, as we're trying to tackle this diversity challenge. So what, what are you saying? You're out there, you're researching the industry. I know I have a lot of conversations, but on your end, what types of big things are popping up? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it in three or four areas. So not just learning, but in other areas too. Uh, we're seeing natural language processing being used a lot to determine whether someone is uh, being biased or not. Okay. Um, we're seeing uh, uh, AR, VR, a lot of 
sort of products have popped up with ARVR to give somebody the experience in walking in somebody else's shoes. Okay. It's a little bit interesting. Um, we're seeing kind of an uptick in uh, coaching and mentoring. Okay. Which hits it indirectly. Um, and then as far as, did I, did I say talent acquisition? We're seeing it used quite a bit in talent acquisition for pipelines and things like that, and also workforce planning. So what does my pipeline look like up to the leadership level? Do I have the right amount of diversity in there? That's all being analyzed on a much closer, in a much closer way than it has been in the past. Okay. So when you, the, jumping back, we can kind of maybe hit on each one of these a little bit. So on the NLP side, in terms of detecting bias, are, are we talking through sentiment, things like that, or the words people are choosing? How, how are people using that? Both. So we're seeing, so we know that um, people will apply for jobs based on the words that are in there, men and women generally. So some words that appeal to men and some words appeal to women. And so there are technologies out there now that allow you to sort of run your job description through the tool and say, okay, this would appeal to men versus women. How do you want to even it out? So you'll get an even number of applicants. So we're seeing it there. We're seeing companies like Zugata who are actually looking at performance reviews and saying this woman is biased based on the words that you're using, or you know, there's a tendency to be vaguer with women than there are with men. So it kind of analyzes what's going on in those performance reviews and, and gives you feedback on that so that you can correct that. Okay, got it. Okay, so so from the, and that's helpful. So in terms of that being able to catch it before it becomes really a bias. So let, let's detect this so that we're not putting job descriptions out that technically cater only to one audience. And then with the with the one in terms of that performance feedback. Now I've been doing some experiments with NLP, um, you know, for voice and uh, voice analysis, things like that. I think some of the challenges that we continue to look at as we move into this is people's comfort with being able to do that. How are you seeing people start to integrate that into things? Are they, you know, they have Alexis on their desk? I mean, wh where is that starting to take hold? Yeah. Um, in the low risk areas, I guess, the areas that aren't as, so for example, it would be, it's used a lot more in um, sort of applicants because it's it, it's not personal yet. Whereas a performance review is very personal. So it's a little bit harder to adapt and adopt there. So if I were to put it, yeah, if I were to choose a, a variable, it would be personal versus not personal. Okay. Got it. Got it. When in, in the VR AR space, you know, I, I've been talking to a fair amount of people who are starting to to play in this space a little bit more, like you said, to kind of create that. Let's put people in environments where they can simulate, simulate or at least experience things like that. And I will say it it seems to be, you know, picking up. I, I definitely think I'm seeing trends there. Any other big any other big kind of takeaways from that that you've really started to see with it? I mean, I have lots of opinions. Um, I think, I think it's really, I think it's a really interesting idea. First of all, it's not often that you get the opportunity to walk in the shoes of somebody else, right? Um, and so, so it makes you aware. It gets rid of some of those unconscious biases that you may have um, in your day-to-day -day life. I don't think it's widely applicable, and I don't think it's cost-effective for many organizations. Um, and I think that's those those things are probably the biggest, the biggest holdbacks. It, and, and by widely applicable, I mean, it's it's an experience, an experience that you have that may move you to change some of your behaviors, but it's it's in no way systemic. So it's it's like other diversity and inclusion trainings, which make you aware of something and then expect you to integrate that into your life and how you do things, regardless of the systems and processes that are pushing against it. Okay. 
And are you, as you're out, you know, kind of looking at this, because you're looking at this from not only just a learning tech, but also industry, right? Whole holistic talent standpoint. Is there still a fair amount of stuff happening with kind of the traditional, right? Diversity training workshop type e-content. You know, I've, I've yeah. not been super close to that. Are you still seeing, like, how's the breakdown? Some of these immersive new trends. I know you said they're a little bit cost prohibitive with that, which I would agree with. Not every organization can even step into that. And even those that could, I would say the adoption of some of these new texts, people are a little bit slow on that. And yeah. so are you still seeing a fair amount of just the traditional approach? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, a lot of companies still don't have buy-in from their leadership that diversity and inclusion is an important thing other than a compliance. So when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we talk about it in two ways. One is compliance, the, the compliant types of things. We have this many women versus this many men. And then we have the other, which is culture. How are you developing a diverse and inclusive and belonging culture to help you actually see business results from it. Those are really different things. The majority of the market is still focusing on diversity and inclusion so that I can cover my butt. Okay. And yeah. Well, that's what, and I guess that was kind of my next natural transition before we talk about what's happened with the training piece is what types of trends, just in terms of organizationally, are, or, and I think there's those two camps, right? It's a, it's a CYA type thing. We just need to make sure we have some sort of record showing that we've told our employees not to behave this way. And then there's the, we're actually trying to change a culture, um, you know, try and do that. How How is that progressing or how are you seeing that move? Is it moving? Is it not? It is moving. I think um, a couple of years ago, uh, Silicon Valley sort of blew up because of some of these things. Um, and I think that's had lasting effects. Um, Me Too movement and the whole Harvey Weinstein thing and his cronies and those things are actually um, changing the way that we think about things. Some of it still might prompt, oh my goodness, we have to make sure that we're compliant. Some of it still prompts that, but large and wide women are starting to care and, and sort of take control and be loud when it comes to some of these issues. Um, minorities are doing the same thing and we're, we're actually seeing a change in organizations. I have lots of faith that it's gonna, gonna prompt some really good things in most organizations. Okay. And are, are there things that, cause I think it's one of those things at least where I've seen it and just in the conversations I have, I think some of the things that you know are blatant may starting to, and, and the question that I've always had is, is is the blatancy of it still just driving it kind of into the shadows or is it actually going away? And I'm curious if you have a take on, you know, is it, is it truly changing in that sense or are we kind of seeing it move a little more subtle? Um, I'm not sure I completely understand. When you say it, you're talking about diversity and inclusion. Like, are we just handling the blatant right, thing? Or are we right. Like, you know, so, I mean, obviously there's the blatant instances that everybody goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. Like right. that's, you know, how is it 2020 and these types of things are still happening? Or I think sometimes it's the more passive and subtle things that really are what kind of yeah. hold organizations back. And I guess my question is, while we may be tackling some of these blatant ones, are you still seeing even the subtle things starting to move as well? We are. And some of those technologies that, that we just barely mentioned uh, are, are what gives me the clue that we're, we're fixing some of it. We're looking systemically at things. And so we're not just saying, oh, my gosh, you idiot, you can't say that in a group. <laughs> you can't <laughs> say that anymore. We're still doing that. And that's a very good thing. But at the same time, we're putting systems in place that help us recognize it on a personal level and change it. So the natural language processing that I talked about, that gives you information before you do something stupid and says, 
hey, you know, pay attention to what's going on here. It also gives the organization information about how their employees are reacting or, or maybe not reacting to that data so that they can make larger systemic changes or, or correct from a different level. Okay. Okay. Well, and for me, that I think personally has been where the technology to me shows a lot of promise in that it's giving us data that we, we historically have not had about the way our organizations operate the way we do things. Now, I think sometimes that can be a little bit of a terrifying look in the mirror when we actually start to see what's, what's happening. And I think that's the part where, you know, as we kind of dive into this, I think there are a lot of issues that we've maybe overlooked for too long that are now coming to light. Are you seeing resistance to kind of facing some of these hard truths that are being brought to light by the data? Not overt. Okay. Um, I've only I think I've only talked to the to the board of one organization where they're like, oh, we're compliant. We have the, we have the the paperwork that says we're compliant. Everybody else seems to be very focused on making it actually change. And I think those are the, um, yeah. I think in general, I think the majority of organizations are like, okay, this is a thing that we need to do. First of all, it's the right thing to do. And secondly, there's there's some good data out there that says a more diverse workforce. Um, helps your innovation and helps you compete better in the marketplace. Okay. Okay. Well, and I want to, I want to kind of tap into that one because I think sometimes it's easy to get focused on what isn't working or where we aren't making progress and we can lose sight of how we are, you know, things are moving and it's encouraging when, you know, what I see, but also to hear somebody who's out talking to a lot of different organizations to say, yeah, we're, we're probably going to have those bad apples inevitably that just say, yeah, great, not really interested, but I think a majority uh, hopefully are, are actually making some, making some changes in that one. So let's talk about, let's talk about the training piece. Cause I think that's one of the ones that is really a little bit of a hot topic for folks is, you know, naturally when there's a diversity problem or something that an organization is faced with, the one that stands out to me most notoriously is the whole Starbucks one, most recently, at least is, Hey, this issue happened. Obviously, and anybody in L&D is familiar with, it's not uncommon for when that happens to say, let's let's throw training at it. Uh, and I've got some perspectives on, you know, how how you tackle that. But what are you, is, is it working? Is diversity training working for folks? By and large, in and of itself, diversity training doesn't work. There are lots of reasons for that. Um, and we can go through those reasons if you want, but by and large, diversity in a training by itself is just like any other training. If if you give them the information, it will make them aware, but it doesn't necessarily change any behavior surrounding that. Um, behaviors in an organization, as you know, Chris, isn't just knowledge. It's, it's all of the things around it that either motivate it or demotivate people from doing that thing. So I want to talk about this because when we first talked about doing this episode, it was one of those things. Let's jump on the AR VR one, right? Where we say, okay, hey, you know, in theory, right? That sounds really good, right? It gives people an opportunity to experience something um, and, and see something from a different perspective. And, and your challenge was, yes, but is that actually then kind of creating a, hey, we had everybody do this so we can go back to business as usual. So I'm interested in your take on that. Would you say that it's not valuable to pursue those? How, how would you tackle that one? I think it's valuable, but I think if you're doing it by yourself, by itself, it's 
it's it's going to fail. You can't you can't rely on each individual person to take a look at the training and say, oh my gosh, I've done some horrible things and now I need to fix those things and and assume that every single person is going to have that same reaction and react in a way that is going to change your culture. Um, culture is, Stacia and I, my, my business partner and I look at culture as sort of the culmination of all your systems and processes, what they're motivating and the types of behavior that they're motivating. That's what your culture is. You can say it is whatever you want to say it is, but the culture is actually defined by the systems and processes that you have in your organization. So if you tell somebody not to do a certain thing or that they need to be careful about including minorities and women or make sure that it's a safe place for everybody to be to, to belong, you can say that, but it's the same thing as slapping a value on the wall. Unless you're going to back it up with the systems and processes, chances are really good that it's going to fail okay. or be um, something that you say, but not necessarily something that you do. Okay. Well, and, and going back to the L and D standpoint, this, I think sometimes people get a little defensive on these topics where it's like, well, it doesn't work. You know, training doesn't work. And, and you know, Nick Shackleton Jones and I know each other and, and he's notorious for saying that, right? Training doesn't work because very often in a vacuum like that, I mean, you can, you can have people go through something and, and we see it within person events all the time, right? It's an event, people go, they come back and they go, that was really powerful. That was meaningful. I had a really great thing. And then you ask them a week later, what do you even remember what happened? Usually the answer is no, but even if they did, if you say, what behaviors have you changed as a result of that? Yeah. It's kind of this blank, like, oh, well, it really didn't. I mean, that's not the way our business operates. So I just kind of went back, right. went back to, to the way things are done. But so let's, let's talk about this because I think sometimes this is a hurdle for L and D some is, is we aren't always thinking about the broader talent ecosystem. So when we say, Hey, if training just done in isolation, I think a lot of L and D's natural go-to is, okay, well, we'll make a campaign or we'll make a, a program around that. That's not really what you're talking about in terms of thinking bigger than that. Talk a little, and, and I know this one, but talk a little bit more about that because I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's not just, well, we need to make the training stick. So let's space it out. Let's make sure there's reinforcement. Right. Let's do cool things like that. Even the best learning journey is not going to change things if yeah. you're tackling the broader talent ecosystem. So yeah. go into that one a little bit. Okay. Well, let me let me use a metaphor. Um, this is a metaphor given to me by Dave Ulrich. I used to work for Dave. Um, and he said something some really profound one day. He's like, when you travel, you're either a guest or you're a tourist. And when you're a tourist, you have an itinerary and you go through that itinerary and you go see some things, you take pictures of them, you go home and brag to your friends that you that you saw these places and you stick them in a drawer and you never think about it again. That's a that's a tourist way of doing things. Right. When you're a guest, somebody takes you by the hand and shows you the culture. You sit in a square for four hours and watch people. You're 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 given the opportunity to eat um, native food with with a family that, that lives there. You experience it in a completely different way than you do than if you're a tourist. When we think of training, we often think of it as a tourist. We bring them in, we give them an itinerary, we give them a pretty picture model, and then they go back to their office and they stick it in a drawer and leave it and don't ever really touch it again. What we should be doing is we should be taking a look at the culture and seeing how we infuse the things that we need them to take away from this into the culture itself. So L&D for lots of years has been a silo on the side of the organization and it can no longer afford to do that. And 
diversity and inclusion is one place where they really, really can't afford to do that because they can't have the influence they need to have if all they're doing is treating it like a tourist activity. Okay. They need to be um, completely integrated with things like talent acquisition. Do we have a diverse workforce to begin with? They need to be talking to leadership. Are leaders paying attention to the things that they need to pay attention to to make sure that we maintain a safe and inclusive environment? They need to make sure that the, the culture itself is inclusive and that it takes into account things that may not be completely obvious. We just did a paper on diversity and inclusion, particularly with women in networks. There's this whole, in most organizations, there's a complete network of information that isn't clearly stated anywhere that sometimes men have more access to than women. So how do we, how do we surface those things and make sure that everybody has access to these things? It's not gonna happen in a classroom. It's gonna happen through lots of conversations and lots of deciding what the culture needs to be and fixing it in all of those areas to reinforce the information they get in the learning, not necessarily um, work against it. Okay. So a, a better integration of what we're doing sure. into. So, so then my, my, the other one I want to tackle here with this because, well, so before I do that, I think what you're getting at has broad application beyond just diversity and inclusion. And I think our role, like you said, it's changing what we, how we serve organizations is no longer the the content shop, right? We're, we're here to create content and push things out. And I even look at you know, what's going on with COVID right now, where you look at it and say, you know, yeah, we could use our time to say, let's take this like learning and let's push out how to be a good manager in in learning and development, and how do you how do you work from home? And those aren't necessarily bad things, but in isolation, right highly ineffective where I see huge opportunity for us to say, hey, we are the people connectors of the organization. How do we facilitate, like you said, infusing people into these things, giving them opportunities to connect and do those other more human side of things versus just creating content and pushing. I think that's what you're talking about from a DNI standpoint is instead of saying, hey, here's more information you need to know, don't necessarily get rid of that stuff, but just don't stop there. Correct. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, so the other thing, and I completely forgot what I was going to ask you about this. Um, so when it comes to, well, let, let's, let's do this. When it comes to integrating with that, have you seen organizations that are doing this well from an L and D standpoint? And what are some of those steps or, or ways that they're kind of integrating into that? Because it's one thing to say it, it's just like, right, for years in the industry, we've said we need to focus on outcomes and we need to see it at the table. And yet for years we've struggled to get there. So I think it's a similar situation where we say we need to be more integrated and out of our silos. The organizations you're seeing that are doing it well, how are they doing that? Yeah, interestingly, a couple of years ago, we took a look at the learning technology space. Um, we spent lots of time sort of digging into it um, from the from the vendor side as well as from the, the organization side from the leader side and what we found was there are basically six things that LD is responsible for that they should be encouraging employees to do it, as you mentioned it's no we're no longer just a content shop that's pushing stuff out there are actually six things that we should be doing to encourage people and if we're paying attention to these six things and i'll go over them in just a second but if we're paying attention to these six things that automatically requires LD to step out from behind their desk and to integrate with different parts of the organization. Perfect. So the first one is plan. Um, we used to not be in charge of planning. We used to put a curriculum together for a specific career path and off people went. Like that's not how it is anymore. People move and take different paths and decide they want different things. And so we got to plan. We got to help them plan. And part of helping them plan is providing them the resources to know what they should learn and how they need to go about learning those things. It's not obvious 
anymore. It, it just isn't. The second one is discover. When we're talking about something like diversity inclusion or whether we're talking about developing new skills within the organization, we need to help those people understand why they need those skills and, and help them find this stuff, whether it's through a Slack channel, whether it's through a traditional LMS, we need to help them discover the things that they need to learn. Third one is consume, we all know that one, pushing information to them that they need. Fourth one is um, experiment. New knowledge and skills need a place to experiment. And so how are we building that into the work itself? How are we working with the managers to make sure that they have opportunities to, to use this? And what other systems are we using to reinforce that information? Lots of stuff out there right now on nudges and on natural language processing and getting data down to the individual. How are we using those tools and those other parts of the organization to reinforce the knowledge and skills we're trying to get them to understand as L&D? Fifth one is connect. How are we helping them to connect with people in the organization that can help them? Are there, are there hotlines? Are there mentors? Are there things or other people that they know they can go to for help. And then the sixth one is perform. We need to hold them accountable for, for performing. It's not just a check the box assessment anymore. It's how are you actually performing on the job? And we talked about data and we talked about tools that help us know how we're doing, but also help the organization know how we're doing that can solve some of these problems and build them into the culture rather than just assuming that it's a check the box activity. Okay. So from a, from a, well, in, in, I think those are, again, just like the last one we talked about, I think all six of those are, are good steps we could take well beyond. DNA. Yeah. I think if we, if we integrated that into our natural fibers, um, I, I think we'd improve really everything that we were driving and supporting through that. Um, you know, as you look at this, one of the things that I think can't be overlooked is that there are definitely organizations that still systemically have some culture challenges that, that hold hold them back in this arena specifically. Uh, and over the years, I think there's always this balancing act because sometimes the attitude is, well, that's just the culture. That's just the way it is. And there's a little bit of like a hopelessness of like, well, so we just do it. And other times, right, it's, well, we, you know, culture starts at the top. And so we have to start at the top. How in organizations that may be struggling with this or trying to figure this out, how, where where can they start with it in a way that because trying to convince it at the top I can I've done it in the past doesn't always go super well out of the gate you you need to almost have this blend of organic opportunity and top down have you seen things work well yeah I think I think it begins with understanding what your sphere of influence is um, <clears throat> you can only do what you can do you're right um, convincing the CEO that that things need to change is sometimes a really big thing. But what we have seen is that that organizations, and L&D is really interesting organization because it goes across all the other organizations. It's, it's It really has a broad reach. Um, and a lot of times L&D feels very unempowered to do anything. Um, but if they can take a, a step back and see what they can do, the small steps that they can take in order to change minds and collaborate and cooperate with people, they can actually have a really big um, impact on the organization. If you think, I compare it to implementing technology in an organization. A lot of the vendors that we talk to say that they do a land and expand model, right? They land in one part of the organization, they get it working well, and then other people see it and they're like, oh, that works really well. Let's, you know, let's, let's try it in our part of the organization too. It's the same thing with any idea. A land and expand idea, finding a couple of managers that want to do this or that are really interested in diversity and inclusion or whatever the topic happens to be work with them, develop them, make them into evangelists for the organization, point people to them, highlight what they're doing, and pretty soon it will expand. Um, <clears throat> the, other, the other thing is data. 
data helps a ton. Um, understanding what works and what doesn't and going after the data that says we should be doing this for these reasons can really sway senior leadership to make different decisions. Sometimes they just don't have any idea what kind of impact these things can have. Okay. Well, and going back to what we talked about earlier, to me, this is one of the, right, the, pursuing digital and, and technology in L&D is not about finding fancy tools. It's not about doing that kind of stuff. It's one, it's about solving real problems, but two, it's about giving us data to have more of these business conversations to be able to say, we know this is not working or we know this is working or this is something we should be investing in i know that you know that to me is one of the most exciting parts about it is that we actually have quantitative data which in lnd is something that is historically been very challenging we've we've relied on qualitative well did people like we don't really know what's going on in their brains and we're not really there to see how they're behaving now we actually can. We have a better insight into that, and I think that's something. And to your other point, with the, I like the I like the land and expand. Uh, I haven't had a term for what that is, but <laughs> that's that's been an approach that I've used in me, basically every organization I've been in is where you have to say, look, you can control what you can control, but that doesn't mean you just give up. Instead, you do it really well. And it's amazing how, and this may go back to some of the things that we've heard people say, we need to operate more like marketing. Yeah. yeah. In a lot of different ways, we need to be much better at telling great stories about when things are going really well, because people do take notice, right? When you, when you, when you land and something goes well, people start to, to look and go, what is that? What are you doing over there? How do we bring this to this organization? And can you count on that as, being the only thing no but what it does do at least from my experience is it gets you to like this tipping point where then the rest of the organization can't ignore it anymore because yeah. there's so many people that are talking about it so many eyes are on it that, that it's just something that can't be ignored anymore okay how about globally i'm curious just you're you're in a lot of countries you're all over talking to a lot of different spaces do you see global nuances to where things are progressing and how things are progressing? And if so, what are they? Diversity and inclusion wise, yes, absolutely. Um, okay. Some cultures just naturally care more about this. Um, Any specifics? Like, I'm just curious, like how does, how does Europe trend versus the US? What are you seeing in you know the Asian markets? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't have any data. I have okay. anecdotal sort of thoughts on that, but I don't yeah, have any Yeah, even data. anecdotes. Again, nobody's, nobody's going to hold us to it, but I'm just curious what, what kind of general trends. Yeah, and it really depends on sort of the, the aspects you're talking about, right? Like um, German uh, work councils, for example, are very, very specific about what's allowed and what's not allowed and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And so in some ways, they're, they're way ahead. Um, in some ways, uh, Asia may, may be a little bit behind just because of traditional gender roles and, and some other types of things. As far as technology goes, most of the technologies that are coming out that are either focused on diversity and inclusion or are diversity and inclusion friendly um, are coming out of the US. Um, and I think a lot of that, Stacia, bless her heart, my, my business partner, two years ago, recognized this trend. I was like, okay, Stacia, you know, if you want to study diversity and inclusion technology, go right ahead. Um, but it's turned out to be a huge thing. And almost every vendor that we talk to has some way of addressing the diversity and inclusion issue. And I think a lot of that has stemmed from the, the, the headlines in the United States about some of the stuff that has gone on that we no longer deem as acceptable. Um, it's, it's almost 
in a lot of cases, it's driven by uh, the headlines and it's also driven by the vendors to this point. I think the vendors are still a little bit out in front of this, but I think, but organizations are catching up. And the more data that comes out that says a, you know, a diverse and inclusive and uh, belonging organization does better, have more diverse ideas and are better at innovating and responding and solving problems and these types of things, um, we're beginning to realize the importance of not having a completely heterogeneous workforce. And that's changing things a lot. Okay. So on this one, and I, you know, I'll ask you both as, you know, I mean, you're, you're female, so I can, I can go ahead and, and make some assumptions that you've experienced some of this stuff, but also you hit on it a little bit earlier, you know, some of the areas, I think sometimes when we think of, of diversity or we think of inclusion, we think of like what we've seen in our compliance training, right? Mm -hmm. Though, like that's immediately what we go to like, oh yeah, you know, you're in the break room and this, you know, thing happens. You're like, okay, yeah, maybe that's, part of it, but like, what are some of those, you hit on one earlier in terms of job descriptions and even the language. I think sometimes people just aren't always thinking of where this stuff creeps in, you know, from your own personal experience and just other things you're seeing in your industry research, like what are some of these opportunity areas that people might not be thinking about? They might just kind of be glossing over because I mean, job descriptions, I think a lot of people would be like, I wouldn't think about the way job descriptions are worded at all. Yeah, I think I mean, I think to completely fix the problem, we got to go back to preschool. I, I honestly do, because the way that we sort of handle things moving through the education system biases us. Um, so so that would be my first thing is we need to fix it way earlier. Than, so than it's 12 people, right? <laughs> we're starting we're starting we're starting over there. <laughs> For example, my, my niece, uh, when she was 12 years old, she she got pulled out of the normal classroom and said, hey, you're really smart. We'd love to put you in the STEM program. And she's like, great, let's do it. You know, she goes into the STEM program. And she's the only girl out of 30, 30 people. And some of that was that, that more boys were invited. Um, but, but the other part of it was she ended up kind of backing out of it as well because she didn't feel comfortable being the only girl. And so we make these assumptions really early um, about what girls do and what boys do or what, you know, what's, what different groups of people are capable of or how they are and they stick with us all the way through. And so it creates this con unconscious bias that just kind of perpetuates through, through the workforce. Um, one of the biggest things that we've seen is just access to information. And I know that sounds so stupid, but but if you have a, a woman and a man, for example, um, applying to a high potential organization or a, hypo, a hypo, uh program, oftentimes the men have more access to senior leadership and they also have more access to the information that will help them succeed there. It, there's this whole level of information that is sort of hidden and it's not intentional by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just not written down because everybody thinks it's common knowledge, but it's not common knowledge for half or even more of the organization. And so just surfacing those things and making sure that everybody has access to the exact same information can really change the way that organizations respond to these types of things. The other thing that we see, um, there is data out there and I can't quote it off the top of my head, but women won't apply for a job unless they're, you know, 80 or 90% certain that they can do the job as it is described. Okay. Men will apply at a much lower level. Guys are a little more like, ah, I'll figure it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but that's a real disparity because you might it have is. more qualified women, um, but the men are the ones that, those are the applications you're getting because of the way that you're phrasing things or because you're not encouraging the women to sort of take those leaps. Okay. Um, one more example that I'll give you, men tend to get more feedback and they tend to get more pointed feedback. So when women aren't doing well, they get things like, well, you need to work harder or, 
you're not doing as well as you should be. Whereas men will be like, hey, you did this wrong, you need to fix this thing. And so just being aware, and, a, and some of that just comes from the way that we're raised, right? Like women are more emotional. And so we need to be, we need to be careful of upsetting her. And, and those types of things, when we're in the workplace, it should be even. We should be able to handle that evenly and we don't. And so one of the things that I'm very excited about is, is what you mentioned, which is data. Data is giving us opportunities to fix that from the top level, but it's also providing the individual's data about how they respond or how they perform that can help them correct it without sort of the emotional level that's sometimes put on top of all of this. Okay. Well, and and yeah, it's so the, go, going back to that point, and this is the one of the things that I think will be interesting. Uh, and, and it's part of why I think personalization is so exciting with what's happening with data because these... And I liked what you said earlier, and it's a fair point to make, is that a lot of these things aren't intentional. And I think that's where things get get heated is there's assumptions made about like, oh, well, this was an intentional move. And it's like, maybe it wasn't. Like, maybe truly, and it, you know, it just, like you said, it was assumed knowledge or it was assumed, oh, you didn't, you didn't know that. But I think that's where the data gives us more insights into that. And I think the other thing with that, though, is, is there are some things that yeah, okay, from a gender standpoint, are there behaviors that may be more common in different genders, but maybe not? Like I know, I, I can even say as a guy, right? There's plenty of assumptions people make because, oh, you're a guy, you know, you you look athletic, you're into sports. And I'm like, I hate sports. Like I don't pay attention to sports. I couldn't name five sports teams if I had to. And again, not saying, oh, it's the same thing, but it's one of those things where data allows us to say, hey, this is what really works with this person. This is what they need to be successful because male, female, like race, what th there is no universal, you are this way. And therefore this is how you operate. And I think that to me is one of the encouraging parts about this is we can get to that point of there is necessarily no, well, it's equal for everybody because not everybody's the same. And so you can't just say, well, we'll just put everybody on the same playing field because nobody's playing field is, is flat. I don't know. I love that. I really love that. I love the idea of personalization for that very reason as well. Um, we we stereotype people based on our own experiences, and that's hardly ever hardly ever right. But we also we also encourage things and not encourage things based on those stereotypes. And if we can get down to the individual level and look at each person individually, which we're almost able to do with the data that we have, then we're encouraging women who are good at math and and science and and, and data to to follow those paths, and we're encouraging men who are have a bent toward empathy and you know things to encouraging them in a different way where, and and some of these things will disappear but i think you're right i think we need to get down to the individual personal level and take a look at the data that we have for the individual and help them understand that data and make an, an act based on that data yeah well and i think it's not only empowering to the organizations because i think sometimes we look at it as and this is where I think we have to overcome this fear factor with people on data, because it's like we're giving this data and organizations have data and they're having more data on me. And what are they doing with it? Which is fair questions to ask. I think they are all very fair questions to ask. And yeah. in our space, I think we need to be very diligent from an ethics standpoint of being able to answer those questions and know how we are using that data so we can do that. But I think the part that's exciting as an individual, and I think for employees, they should be excited about this, is having that knowledge and data on yourself, right, can create a self-awareness that you may not have that going back to your point of, you know, where women may struggle more to apply to a job they don't feel like they're qualified for. If you have more data that says, no, you are, 
you are qualified for that job. And here's the data showing based on your experiences, your jobs, your skills, you actually are 90% qualified for this job. That empowers you as an employee to say, you know what, I have more confidence to come to the table with this. Or when right something happens, you can say, no, this isn't actually the way I operate and here's why. So I think that's where I look at data and technology and I, I think it opens up huge opportunity for, for a lot of different things. And I, I know we have a long ways to go with that, um, you know, but we're, we're getting there. Agreed. So, so with this, you know, boss asked a question. I'm curious on this. So based on the things we were just talking about, um, you know, do you think there would be a, a common standard? So we talked about the feedback, right? You talked about the feedback and, and men tend to get more pointed and direct feedback. And it's like, Hey, you know, you screwed this up when you did this and this is what you should do better versus kind of a vague, like, well, you could have improved the way you delivered that message. Do you think it's possible to get to a common standard feedback model that that can kind of do that? I mean, how, how do you see that? I mean, I have to. I mean, <laughs> I think I think as humans, we can change and adjust. We can see a better future and work toward that. And I think that's what we're trying to do. I don't necessarily think that we have to do it out of sheer force of will. I think the data that you talked about is going to be incredibly helpful. There are technologies out there right now that will listen to you give a speech and say, you said all oh, this many times, or listen to you in a meeting and said, hey, you didn't speak up as much as I expected you to. It's just data. And getting that data back down to the individual, I think, is part of this feedback that we're talking about. It doesn't have to be from a manager. It just has to be accessible. Um, obviously, there are things that managers are really important for, and we need to make sure that they are aware of their biases or don't have any, which is impossible. Um, but I think it's I think it's all about information, the type of information you get and how that's delivered. Okay. Well, and it goes back in, I think, to this personalization thing, right? It's it's coming back to that state of we're we need to get to a place where is there a universal model? Well, no, because there is no universal person. Right. So the way you deliver feedback, you can't say, oh, here's the star model. Go use the star <laughs> model for everybody because that's what works. And I think over the past, it's it's a trend that we've seen in L&D over the years in general, which is we've had to do things because that's what we were limited to do. You know, we delivered via the classroom because, hey, technology wasn't there. We had to do things a certain way. And now technology's opening the possibilities. I think where we're we're stuck a little bit is we're used to kind of the bureaucratic process that we've had in place. Well, feedback has to come from your manager. So I mean, I've I've been in plenty of meetings where it's been like, well, we need to make sure this gets to the manager so they can soften it or exactly. they put their thing on it. It's like, why not just give that? to the employee right? and let them, let them work with that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so as we kind of keep moving on this topic, uh, you know, are there other things that, you know, practically speaking, you would say, you know, Hey, again, you're, you're looking at what's out there. You're looking at what's working. Are there other things we talked about getting out of the silo, focusing more on this data thing? Are there other examples that you've seen that you've said, Hey, this is something that worked really well, or here's, here's an easy step organizations could take or an L and D leader. I think um, one of the trends that I saw last year, and it's, it's ramping up again this year, both in technology and just the sheer number of leaders that are talking about it is this idea of coaching and mentoring um, for a really long time. Coaching and mentoring has been seen as sort of a perk uh, for the upper management, or it has been seen as a corrective action for the upper management. Yeah. Um, 
both of those I think are really wrong. And there are, I, I counted the other day, I think I have a hundred, just over a hundred vendors, tech vendors that focus on coaching and mentoring. And so um, it's, it's becoming a much broader thing. And all of the, most of the vendors that I talked to were talking about it as a solution for everybody, not just a solution for management or corrective action. I think as we continue to move toward the personalization, um, we also continue to move toward the human, which is really exciting to me. We as humans have some really interesting and unique characteristics that make us human that robots will never be able to do and chimps can't do either. Um, we are a unique species and we can do unique things. And I think L&D, but business in general is starting to, to, to recognize those things and take advantage of those things. And I think coaching and mentoring is one, one of the, the outcomes we're seeing because of that. Um, there's nothing more personal than having a conversation about where I want to go in my career with someone who is dedicated to making sure that I get there. Um, and so I think, I think it's going to continue to pick up. I also think it's a little bit, I'm fascinated with the, the, the sort of parallels between coaching and mentoring and what we used to have in place before that factory classroom, which was apprenticeships. Um, you get sort of step-by-step -step guide. You get to know when you screwed up. You don't have to wait to the end of the year to get that information. Yeah. You're sort of guided along. I think coaching and mentoring is coming back to bring some of that back because it's been missing for so many years. Okay. So two, two follow-ups on that. Um, you know, one on the, on the mentoring piece, this is one that I think there, I think we need to make a big distinction in our industry between mentors and advocacy. I think there is a, a vast difference between, you know, being a mentor and being like, okay, I'm here. I'm somebody you can talk to. I'll give you some feedback, but I'm not necessarily going out of my way to do, you know, help you move forward. I'm kind of, it's a one-way channel where it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll give you advice or feedback, but I'm not necessarily helping. And I, and where I've seen personally big differences in things is when those expectations on mentors are, are very clear in terms of, no, you're an advocate for this person. This relationship is yes, you're here to help guide them, but you're also here to advocate on their behalf and help give them access to those information channels. Um, help identify opportunities for them and be there to support them versus kind of this passive feedback source. And I think yeah. that's something that as we look at at mentoring programs in, in L&D and talent, you know, we think about that more broadly because I do think it breaks open some of those, some of those gates that we may not know exist. I really, really like that. Um, we just finished a lit review on coaching and mentoring. And one of the things that surprised me was Mentoring seems to be applied more, and this is mostly academic literature. Um, mentoring seems to be applied to sort of on the job. This is how you can get better. This is where you can go. And coaching is much broader. It's, yep. I mean, we're seeing all kinds of things like financial coaching, wellness coaching, you know, leadership coaching, all these different sort of fragmentations of tech. But mentoring, as you mentioned, is like advocating for that person in that role to help them, you know, somebody in the same kind of like a, an uh, apprenticeship kind of guiding them along and opening yep. up the networks and conversations up. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I've, I've had wild success with it in the past. And again, it's met with resistance. So if people are watching like, oh, that's great. We're going to do this. It was met with resistance because historically mentor programs, a lot of the is dumped on the mentor, yeah. on the mentee, right? It's like, well, you need to come prepared with what you want. You need, we put a lot on them. And then the other, the mentor's role is just kind of to, 
have the meeting, yeah. have the conversation. And so it's met with resistance because it's like, well, no, if you're mentoring somebody, you're accountable for this. Like you're accountable for having a career plan for this person. And, and what are you doing to do that? And at first, like, whoa. <laughs> but it's way more effective is what I've seen. And again, that's that's my personal experience, but I think that's a shift that we can make in that. And then the other thing I wanted to go to that I was curious is, you say you've got a hundred tech vendors focusing on, on coaching. Um, and I know I'm seeing that as a growing trend, right? That's a big thing in terms of coaching. Where do you, and whether this is personal or based on data, see that line of like, where does that human component, right? Where does the manager relationship or leader relationship where do you blur that line between where does the coaching come from and and how much does the human need to be in the loop on that so very good question um and i have examples from anything from a complete completely automatic coaching so so it's just technology and then you check in every once in a while with a human as a group um all the way up to some of the older uh traditional coaching platforms are, let me help you match with that other mentor and then have, you know, a platform for your conversations and keep track of notes and those types of things. I personally think that, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I think, I think so much of this is just wrapped up in making sure that people have the information that they need. Um, I'm calling everything on that entire spectrum coaching. Yeah. But but some organiz some some people are not. Some people are dividing the information sharing from from the coaching and okay. I mean, require human for the coaching. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think you can get coaching from algorithms that pay attention to your past behaviors and give, feed you information that can help you be better. Okay. I don't know. I I honestly don't know where the line is right now. I don't have a line. I think it's, okay. it's all you, you don't have like a this is Danny. This is Danny's take on where we should draw the line. I, I mean, I just think it's all coaching. I think it's all valid. I think it all accomplishes the same thing. Therefore, it's all coaching. Okay. Well, I, I guess it goes, I mean, honestly, it goes back to the personalization of it. Right? Yeah. For different people, it's probably going to be a little bit different. Some people are going to want a little more high touch type stuff. Other people are like, just tell me what I need to know. Exactly. Like, tell me yeah. I think ultimately though, and, and this is my take on really anything technology is you just can't lose the human in the loop at some capacity because I even look at, you know, you look at some of these algorithms that are out there that are making database decisions and providing people with feedback. Here's this. If you just completely trust that, okay, nobody ever needs to look at what that stuff is. I think back to the, uh, we, we won't name names, but I think back to the uh, facial recognition hiring yeah. acquisition thing that you know it was just like oh well the machine said right. that these were qualified candidates like whoa was anybody looking back at like what the data was saying and how we were making decisions on that so i think that's where that's where my stance is is that it's like hey, look we're, we're going to need to navigate this in a lot of different ways at some point a person and some sort of critical thought is going to have to remain you know in there at some capacity i agree and i think I think if you're using any of these technologies as a sort of silver bullet or you know thing that's going to save your your company or your individual, you're you're screwed. So I think paying attention to many technologies and many people as part of the systems and processes in your organization is actually what gets us the personalization, but also what keeps us sort of in check. They're not all going to say the same thing at the same time, and we need thinking, feeling humans in there to help us sort of determine which direction to go. 
Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, what we talked about on it is, and I think it's, again, going back to that holistic piece, which is, is there an aware, is there a component of awareness? We, we have to acknowledge the fact that some of this stuff is awareness. And that's where, you know, it was, it was great when we first talked about doing this was this isn't a scrap all your diversity training approaches because like, no, there is a component of that. There is a component of people need opportunities to be made aware. You just can't, end it with that. Right. You know, I think the coaching pieces is, is another big component of it that it's like, well, what are you doing with it? How are you actually doing that? And then I think the other one, which would be a whole topic for another conversation is right. The whole architecture and just system processes in organizations yeah. that, that don't operate that way. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations where you've wanted to do something and policy doesn't allow it, right? Where you're like, well, we need to make this move or that it went, well, we can't, you know, we have this threshold or this is something that we have to do. And so due to corporate policy, but that's, again, I think sometimes we have to look at that and say, well, we can't, we can't change that. So are there anything, so you've, you've talked a little bit about some of the stuff that's starting to emerge. If you were to you know, look through in your crystal ball <laughs> five years out, although you know, what types of things do you see us moving towards? I mean, what you said, you're seeing positive trends. Where do you see us being in, in a few years from now? From a learning standpoint, from a tech standpoint, yeah. from maybe both, maybe both. Um, I think so I did a, I did a paper a few years ago. It was one, I think it was the first thing that we put out as red thread. Um, and it was called humanizing learning. And what we did is we basically looked at, what are the things that make people uniquely human? I think we're getting to a point with the whole discussion on will robot take my job and you know will I become redundant? All of those all those conversations are particularly poignant in this in this month. Um, but I, I think learning in general and and organizations in general are moving back to the things that humans are uniquely capable of doing. So I think that means a, a bigger sense of personalization in everything that we do. I think it means that we're going to uh, break out of the sort of policy mindset that we're in when it comes to learning and developing. I think we're going to break out of the idea of a, a curriculum and a career path. I think those are going to go away. I think we're going to recognize skills and how they can move across organizations in much broader ways than we do right now. Yeah. I think we're going to start thinking about how we learn and how we adapt and how we are responsive rather than just the skills that we have. I think we're going to, I think we're actually going to default to those things that make us uniquely human. There, there are four of them. One is we can envision a different future and work toward it. That is uniquely human. And we're going to take advantage of that moving forward. Uh, the second one is storytelling. We can motivate like nobody's business if we tell stories and share experiences. Third one is collaboration we are naturally wired to collaborate with people and to, to work for the, the bigger picture. We can tap into that if we move away from these Taylorism ideas. And then the fourth one is the one that you're mostly focused on, which is tools. We, we use tools to shape our world, but we also use tools to shape our mind. And I think we'll continue to see some of those things. I think natural language processing and AI, and maybe even a little bit of VR. I don't know exactly where that one's gonna go, but I think some of these new tools are really gonna help us shape our, our minds and think differently about things and build on things. We're going to be less isolated than we've been in the past. Walls of organizations will sort of drop down or become a little bit more invisible. I'm actually incredibly hopeful for where we're going and what we can do as a human race. 
when we start focusing on humans as humans instead of humans as robots or cogs in a machine. Yeah. Well, well said. I, I, I think, you know, well, we get along and I think for a lot of good reasons. And I think we share that, that same thing. And I think we're seeing that. I think if you look at what's happening, even with COVID-19 right now, right. we're seeing that come to light, right? This, this may be an accelerant to all those things you just talked about where we are being challenged. We're being challenged to be think differently. And the beauty is humans are adaptable. We can adjust and we can adapt. And we're seeing humans do that and come together. And to me, while we can look around at what's going on and say, oh, there's there's so many things that aren't going well, or there's chaos around us, there's a lot of things that we can look to and say, these are going well, or these are opportunities that we can learn from and capitalize on. And I think, I think from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, this whole trend towards caring about humans as humans is a large catalyst behind that. And I think that's what's really encouraging is we are really starting to care about people as people instead of commodities. Yeah. And I think as organizations do more and more of that, um, we're going to be set up. It's, a, it's an exciting future, in my opinion. Um, okay. And I think the challenge we still have is bringing the wave of organizations and leaders forward with that because not everybody's there yet. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I've personally seen some case studies with organizations that historically did not adopt that mentality, got a leader that did yeah. and put it into action. And it was amazing how the quantitative performance of the company picked up. And I think that's one of the exciting parts about this is we'll get there. We'll get there. And I think the tech and the data is going to help us tell those stories. And I think some of the case studies of organizations that you know, really tell it. And I think this current situation is going to highlight the organizations who are further along <laughs> than the ones who, who are a little bit behind. I think the ones who are behind are, are going to feel the pain of this more than those uh, who don't. So cool. Well, Danny, it's always a pleasure. I, I always enjoy our conversations. I'm glad we were able to, to catch up again today. And uh, thanks for sharing your insights, your perspectives on things. Um, and thanks for all that you're doing in the industry to help bring this stuff to life. So back at you, ma'am. I, I always appreciate our conversations. They're always deep. They make me think. <laughs> well, now we got to broadcast it. So somebody right. can actually just hear us. Um, you know, now, now we actually got to, we got to do this live for other folks. So, well, you have a great rest of your Tuesday. Hopefully no more, no more aftershocks. Uh, you, you stay safe, stay healthy and uh, have a great one. Thanks. You too, Chris. All right. Bye-bye. See you later.